So today it's the book of First Peter again, chapter 3, this time starting with verse 8 together. And we want to take a few moments through this study because I think it's very, uh, it's very applicable to where we are in life as Peter has been writing to us the entire uh, journey through this book. But what he talks to us is about some house rules. And you say, Mark, I don't like the word rules when it comes to Christianity. Well, I want to tell you, if you read the Bible, there are rules. Okay, understand that. We just call them what they are, commands. You want to call them suggestions? No, they are. There are rules because there is a huge difference between that of rules and suggestions because rules are open for debate but and, and they can be optional or our suggestions can be optional open for debate, but rules are not because every house has house rules. Now, you should. Right. If you don't have house rules, then your house is probably full of chaos. It's full of unrest. And what I realize in in that of being a pastor and uh, having being a father also, that rules bring security in our lives because we all like boundaries. We all like some direction within our life. We really do. So what are your house rules? You know, if you what what are the rules in your home? And so maybe some of your rules like is this no eating on the sofa, right? You keep the food where it belongs in the kitchen. So no eating on the sofa. Curfew for you is 9 p.m. Say, Mark, don't say that. My parents might get an idea, right? No, curfew is midnight or something like that, correct? If you miss, if you mess it up, you clean it up, right? If you mess up the kitchen, you clean up the kitchen. There's a dishwasher for a reason. That's where dirty dishes go. So if you mess it up, you clean it up. Never leave the TP dispenser empty, right? That's it. That's the, probably one that you say, Mark, I can't believe you said that. No, that is probably a big one for most people in their lives is that you, oh, you never leave that empty. And so we all have house rules. And so what Peter is writing to us about today, he's writing to us about, well, how you and I conduct ourselves in a world as elect exiles. He calls us in this world which we live in. He said, hey, here are some guidelines. Here are some rules that I want you to live by. It's important because there are going to be moments in this life where you feel like you've been cheated. There's going to be moments in your life when you feel like you have been disenfranchised or maybe you've been persecuted for your faith or a stand that you have or a belief that you have that's biblically based, that there are going to be those moments in your life. So it's how you react to those things because your actions as a believer have eternal consequences. They do. They have eternal consequences. And powerfully, they have eternal consequences in the lives of those that surround you. They do. You say, Mark, well, all I'm doing is simply trying to live right in this life so I can kind of make it to heaven. Can I tell you that our call in this life is not for you just to try to live right so you somehow can squeeze through the pearly gates at some point in your life? That's not your call in life. That's not mine. No, it's to glorify God through serving him out through love and not fear. If you're redeemed then you're going to go to heaven when you leave this world. That's not the discussion. The discussion in 1 Peter is this. It's what you do with this space between the moments of your redemption and the moments that you go to heaven. What are you doing with this space? That's it. How are you navigating these moments of your life? How are you navigating the moments of your life when things don't go well? 
when you feel like that things are against you in life, how do you navigate those points? That's the point of First Peter for you and I in these verses. So it is First Peter chapter 3, starting with verse 8. And he says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind, is what he says. So here's what the house rules are. One small verse, four rules for you this morning to live by. The first is this, live in harmony with one another. That we are called to live in harmony with one another. To love and serve God. To love and serve God is the funnel in which all of these rules are going to flow through. That is it. That is our call in life. It is the funnel that we put everything through that you and I do in this point between our redemption and that of heaven. That we love and serve God. That is it. And I think that that's, that's where we, if before we even talk about this first rule, we have to understand that. That you and I can have different likes and we can have different aims in life and different goals. We can. But there's one dominant aim as a believer that we should all have in this room. And it's the funnel of loving and serving God. Everything in our life goes through that one point. Everything. It is. You can have all kinds of different aims. And we talked about that, how different we are in this room. And there's a, there's a lot of nature and nurture going on here. Yes, absolutely. But we can have different aims. But there has to be one dominant aim. It's the funnel of loving and serving God. Because you're going to struggle with all the things that Peter's about to say to you if you're not using that funnel of loving and serving God this morning. So here's what he says. He starts out by saying, live in harmony with one another. So what that means is this. If God calls me to do something, then what I realize is that it harmonizes with my duties toward others. It does. That I can't say that God has called me to something at the expense of caring and taking care of each other. That, that is simply what he's talking about to you and I this morning. That it harmonizes with this call that we have to care for one another. And, and everything that we talk about, again, funnel through this understanding of loving and serving God. That I can't use people. I can't use people to achieve something that I say that God has called me to. I can't do that at all. I can't misuse people to say... This, this is really what God wants me to do, so I'm going to get there no matter what. No, it has to harmonize with us loving and caring for one another. Understand that it does. Yes, and what God calls us to is to work in harmony with loving and caring for each other. Outside of that, it's breaking the rule. Outside of that is breaking the rule. It is. Listen, you know, I was a church staff member for, for many years, uh, 17, 18 years, I don't know, a long time. I forget how many years it's been. Yes, I worked for some pastors. I worked with some pastors. There's a difference, right? Have you ever been there? Yes, and there's a huge difference. And I worked for some of them that simply always thought that they had this goal in front of them that God had called them to. And whoever got in the way of that goal or whatever collateral damage there was to get to that It was okay because the goal was simply what God has called them to. And what Peter says, no, stop. No. If it does not harmonize with each other and are called to care and to take care of one another, then it's against the rules is what he's saying. 
This is the ultimate thing that we must realize that we harmonize with one another. He said, so if you understand that, then let me give you another rule because they build on one another. Love is brothers and sisters is what he said. So what does he really mean? Because there are times that you want to punch your brother, right? Yes. If, if you have a sibling, okay, let's just clear the air, okay? How many of you have ever, if you have a sibling, you've ever wanted to just punch your sibling? Let me see your hand, okay? Good. All the others are only children, right? I mean, you're the only child in the family. Yes, absolutely. But let somebody else punch your sibling or want to do that, and then it's game on, right? That's exactly what Paul, Peter is talking about. He's talking about that kind of love. Here's what he's talking about. For you and I, he's talking about a quality of love in our life. Is exactly what he's talking about. He's talking about a quality of love that we have for one another. 1 Thessalonians 4 and 9 says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. What is he saying? That God has taught us how to love each other through the model of his son Jesus. That's the standard. Mark, that's a high standard, isn't it? It's a really high standard. And we, and we suffer with that sometimes in that standard of loving others like Christ loved us. We do. That this kind of love surpasses that thought and that statement that you and I have sometimes or say that, well, you know, I have to love you to go to heaven, but I don't have to like you. And I don't know if you've ever said that or thought that, you know, it's a justification for your feelings is what it is. No, what he's saying is, I want you to love each other well. I want you to love each other well. It's the quality of love that you have. It's that what we would expect out of some type of biological brotherly love for one another. That I want you to love one another well. I think a lot of times in church we talk about loving each other. We say when we hammer that thought over and over. But how many times do we talk about the quality of love that you and I have for one another? That how well are we loving each other? So how does that work? It's rule number three. That that Simply, it's through that demonstration or that we demonstrate sympathy and compassion for each other. That we're showing this loving compassion for those that have need in life. Like we prayed this morning, like you're going to pray this week for this family in loss. We show that, we, we show that loving compassion for those in need. And we don't just step aside and ignore those in need around us. That we don't ignore that moment. That we respond to those moments in life with compassion and sympathy. We feel the struggle of life for them. We sense their plight in life very deep in our own very souls is is what we're talking about. Ephesians 4 and 32 says it like this. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgives you. It's the model that we have and how we care for each other. That our, that our faith is translated into action is what he's saying. Because the common thread that you and I find throughout this study of the book of First Peter is that the Christian life is much more than just sitting and listening and talking. 
But the Christian life is much about action. That my behavior as an exile in this world and how I respond to you does really matter. It does. Mark, you can't command me to love somebody. Love is an emotion that you can't command. Because if you command me to love someone, then that love is not authentic. Oh, some of you have been looking for that loophole, haven't you, right? It's like your tax return. Now I have permission. You said it from the stage. Wait a minute. Don't jump too quickly on that. Because when I look at this love that Peter is talking about, our love is a reflection of Christ's love for us. It's what it is. No, I can't necessarily command you to love someone and then you love someone because I told you to love them. But I sure can tell you that you love someone as a reflection of God's love in you. You have compassion for other people, even when you don't understand their place in life. Why? Because Christ had compassion for you. You show grace in moments of life when you don't want to show grace. Why? Because simply there has been great grace shown to you by Christ. So I understand it now in a greater way. It is. It's not enough for me just to say simply, oh, because I'm a Christian, I love everybody in the world. No, our love and compassion for those around us has to have a very personal edge to it. It has to have a personal edge. Listen, Peter is writing to people. He's writing to people that are exiles, small communities of believers living in these provinces of Rome. And they're surrounded by Roman idolaters. They're living next door. Their neighbors are Romans who worship idols. They're surrounded by that kind of situation is what they do. And he says, hey, your loving compassion should simply be personal. It should be. You should love outside of your station of life. That means that you love and show compassion, sympathy to the idol worshiper that lives next door to you. Yes. That you show compassion and sympathy to your neighbor and you love them even though they always send their dog to your yard to take care of his business, right? Yes, and you've been there. I've been there before. I've handled that the wrong way. I have in the past and had to repent for that. So yes, you do. You love people outside of the station of your life. Wow. That's challenging for you and I. It's so challenging that Peter gives us another rule. Rule number four. Because this is so challenging. He says, here it is. The path to success and I add in some little something words there as an exile to these house rules. The path to success is paved with humility. It's paved with humility. And I think for you and I, sometimes the word humility is a little confusing. It, it really is. It's confusing. What does he mean? So I looked up the definition. Humble people, a biblical definition is humble people are those that are aware of their position as God's creation. That you are entirely dependent on God. 
That's what it is. That you understand your position as God's creation. That you are entirely dependent upon God. Anything outside of that understanding is pride. So you think more highly of others. But what does humility look like? Because I think we have it confused with some things. I really do. Is humility just me telling you that you're better at something in life knowing factually that I'm more proficient at that thing? Is that humility? Is that? Yes. You say, Mark, that's actually lying. I know. But how many times have you told somebody that in life, right? Oh, dude, you're so much better than that than I am knowing that you are far better than that, right? You are far better at that in life. But we say, is that really humility? Yes. Is it denying? Is it denying that you're a better fisherman than someone else and you catch all the fish, but you tell them how horrible of a fisherman you are and how wonderful they are? Is that humility? Is it to form statements in conversations that make people feel better about themselves even when they're untrue? It's a thought, isn't it? Is humility approaching the door and somebody else approaches the door at the same time? And you say, oh, step back. You go before me. And they say, oh, no, you go before me. And then you say, oh, no, you go before me. I insist. And they say, no, I double insist, right? And all of a sudden you have a 15-minute encounter that nobody wants to go through the door. And politeness all of a sudden turns into what? It turns into a brawl right there, doesn't it? Yes, I was going, my my dad always taught me, you never walk into a door in front of a, a lady, a woman. You never do that, no matter what their age is. You just don't do that as a man. So I don't do that ever. Yes, I was at a, a store the other day. I get there at the moment of a, a, another woman gets, a woman gets there. And I open the door and said, go before me, you know, or whatever I said. And she said, no. That's what she said, no. And I thought, no, she didn't say no, thank you. She just said no. And, and, and I said, well, I don't know what to do. How do I handle this? You know, I'm not sure. And, and I don't want to get beat by a woman right here in front of everyone. What do I do? And, and I said, no, no, I insist you go. And she said to me, I said, no, that's what she said to me. And I said, fine. And I went in the door and I shut it behind me, made her open it herself. Right. So what is humility? What does it really look like? Let me tell you what it looks like. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. It's more than words. In fact, Peter calls it a humble mind. Paul writes in Romans, not in your notes. Read it later, Romans 12 and 3. Here's what he says, paraphrasing. That we should not think of ourselves more highly than we ought, but we should think of ourselves soberly or with sober judgment. And I thought that's very interesting. That I don't think of myself more highly than I should, but I think of myself with sober judgment. What is he saying to me? I think first is what he's saying is that I accept the things that I'm not good at. I do. I accept those things. I'm honest about those things that I'm not good at, that I can't do. Because what it does, it, it helps me to rely on other people. It's about community. So I accept the things that I can't do, or I accept the things that I'm not really good at and people are better. But I think there's a second thought here. 
that we think of ourselves soberly. You know what that means? It's an alternative to drunkenness. Isn't that interesting he uses that word there? It really is. To be sober means to be accurate, is what he means. That I don't think less of my abilities than really is warranted. I acknowledge what I'm good at because what God has given me gifts and talents in is to serve others. It's to serve him and to serve others. So I, th- I think straight about myself. I'm not going to think too lowly of myself because that's not humility at all. That's not it at all. But I'm not to think so highly of myself either. So what keeps me in the middle of those two things? It's the gospel that keeps me in the middle of those two things. Because what I realize is that I am a redeemed sinner. So no matter what I do in this life, I can never earn a moment of God's love. Not even one moment of God's love could I ever earn. That what I realize is that I'm saved entirely through the kindness of another, and that is Christ. And the awareness of that tempers my actions and my words in this life. I see my life through the gospel. But I also realize that the gospel says some other things about me also. That I am redeemed, that I am loved by God, that I am valued by God. And because I am valued by God, that really God's opinion of me is the only opinion that really matters. Above all other opinions in this life, that I appreciate the value that God has placed upon me. But I appreciate that value in the shadow of the cross and the gospel. So that's humility. That's interesting, isn't it? Wow. Wow. There's a lot of false humility in the world. So he says, those are the house rules. Those are the, those, that, there they are. But then what he says is this, verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or rivalring for rivalring, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. My reaction does matter in this life. It really does. Because here's what he's saying. He's referring this back to ancient law. Ancient law, there was no detail in law. So in ancient law, private revenge was the expectation. It really was. So in other words, if you do something to me, then I do something back to you equally. Does that make sense to you? That's, that, that was ancient law. But yet my reaction to your infraction, and my, that, that kind of rhymes, doesn't it? My action to your infraction should never outweigh the infraction. Well, what does that mean? What that means is this. If you simply come into my driveway tonight and you steal my, my old broken down beater car and you st- and why you would do that, I don't know, right? I don't know. But if you were to steal out of my dra- driveway, then tomorrow night I can't come to your driveway and steal your brand new BMW. I can't do that. Do you understand? Yeah, it's the eye for the eye kind of thing is what it was. That's what he's referring to here. And he says, you say, well, well, that's justice. But do we really in this life want justice for us? Because when you read Peter's writings, Peter was so emphatic about the resurrection. Why does he talk about the resurrection so much? He talks about the resurrection because in the resurrection, what you and I are, we're justified. That means that we don't get what we justly deserve. We're justified. 
that we are covered, that you and I have been simply covered in that of, of the perfection of Jesus, the Son of God, so that when God sees us, he sees you and I justified as if we have never sinned before. And so our reaction mirrors that work in our life. Now it's going to get tough. Because that's what our action in this life mirrors. We don't get what we deserve in life, so that's how we deal with others. Now, I'm not advocating lawlessness. I'm not advocating removing all laws in our land, uh, that community justice that replaced ancient justice. I'm not advocating that at all. That's the, but I'm talking about you personally within your life. That's what I'm talking about. You personally, how do you navigate those moments? How are you navigating the moments when you feel like you've been marginalized? How are you navigating the moment when you feel like you've been cheated? How are you navigating those moments when you feel like that you have been the recipient of evil? You've tried to keep the rules. You've tried that, but yet you're tempted right now to retaliate. And here's the kicker. You feel like you're justified in retaliating because I have the proof. So I'm justified in doing what I want to do. I'm going to dish out some old, good old, ancient justice. An eye for an eye. That's what I'm going to do here. And he says, wait a minute. Guard your reaction. Guard your words. In the middle of those moments. Because he says, to this you were called. This is the second time he said this to us. To this you were called. That we seize the opportunity in those moments of our lives to not do what's expected. That's it. We seize those moments in our life to not do what is expected for the sake of the gospel that we return blessing in the place of abuse. Wow. If you have notes this morning... If you have them online, there are three references, Luke, Romans, and 1 Thessalonians. Read those later on in your study this week to help you to understand what God is saying to us. But I, I got stuck in this thought of what's the blessing? What is he talking about? And when I begin to read this, what I realize is the blessing that he's talking about is the gospel. That we give them back the gospel. When we are wronged, we return with the gospel. And what the gospel says to you and I is that simply we don't get what we deserve in life. That we don't hold people to this point of earning something with us or earning our love or earning our acceptance. That we give them back the gospel is what we do. When we're attacked personally, we do not return those personal attacks with evil in our lives. He said, to this your call, it's a non-retaliatory way of life. It is. We give them the gospel is what we do. We offer blessing to others as a condition to God's blessing. And I realize that some of you, you're on tangents right now with your mind. I know you are. I realize that I can, I can smell something burning in the room. It's the brain power going in here. I understand that. And your mind is racing in all kinds of areas. And you're trying to stamp this over everything in your life. I realize that. And there are great discussions that we could have in this area. But I'm here to tell you what Peter says in 1 Peter. And that is that we give them the gospel back when we are mistreated in life. 
Are we always good at that? No. Are we always perfect at living in that? Absolutely not. I would be the first to tell you about myself or this room. But when I read this, what stuck out in my mind was this. That simply that if I return blessing to those that have done me wrong, then God blesses me in return. And I thought, oh, wait a minute, this is a good thing. Now I'm liking this, right? I'm kind of liking this thought that Peter leaves us with for a moment. And, and so the more I, I, I close my mouth and the more I walk away, then the more God blesses me. So that's going to be my motive and the simply the catalyst for me and how I treat others. And can I tell you, if you got that idea in your mind, that's not, that's not the right idea. That's not. In fact, Peter often talks about our motives in life and the heart that our actions are, are simply powered by in, in life. That is about our motive. It's about making Christ known in the gospel. For a moment, skip down to verse 13. Go back today, read verses 9 through 12, where he quotes the book of Psalms for you also. But skip down to verse 13. And here's what he says. Now... Who is there to harm you if you are zealous of what is good? And I thought, man, so, so all of a sudden he's talking about this thing about you and I being persecuted. And now he says to us now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous of what is good? He said, but if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. So here is perhaps right almost the very last, last point of our talk this morning. It's this, when you suffer, suffer well. You say, Mark? You could have stopped earlier by telling me I can't retaliate, and and that's one thing. But now you're going to tell me that when I suffer, I have to suffer well? Because what Peter is doing, he's referencing all these things that these exiles have gone through thus far. And so what they're thinking, there's this fear about the future. What's going to happen tomorrow? What's going to happen in my life tomorrow? And, you know, they've been hurt and evil's been spoken against them and they've been disenfranchised. And, and, and I think what we tend to do in life when we are mistreated is we tend to throw up the wall of defense, right? We tend to wall ourselves off. Dude, I put my heart out for you one time. You know, I'm not going to put my heart out for you again. Absolutely not. No. Absolutely not. The, what is the old saying? The first time, shame on you. The second time, shame on me. Have you, have you heard? I think I said that right, I believe. But that's what we say. So, dude, not again. I'm never going to. And is that suffering? Well, is that what he's called us to do? So I, I have a question. And I think it's a question that these exiles could have asked. And that is, what will happen to us if we really live as Christians? Because they must have been thinking that What's going to happen to us if we really live as Christians? Yes. Because I think when you look at this, he says, but even if you should suffer. So is all of my Christian life about suffering? Is that what it's about? Yeah. If I go buy me two tickets, then, you know, I mean, is that is that what this is about? And, and, and Peter's saying, no, that, that's not what this is about at all. That the totality of your life as a Christian is not suffering. Realize that. Don't go away thinking that this morning. That's not it at all. It's not. And, and, and don't think, well, I'm not suffering right now, so something's spiritually wrong with me. No, that's not it at all either. So don't think that either. No. But he goes on to say, who is there to harm you if you are eager to do good? Is what he says. So there are many times in our lives where even as believers, that our lifestyle resonates with unbelievers. It is that we find ourselves on the same page as unbelievers. It's a thought. 
we find ourselves at the same place. We really do. And then I thought, that, is that what he's talking about? Because many times when you do the right thing in this life, you stand for the right things, that it resonates with both believers and unbelievers. And so I think that we can make a statement right here. And, and for all of us in this room, stop with the us against them concept. Stop. That's not what this is about. And I think so many Christians and so many churches have that concept they function under. It's us against them. No. It's us against the spirit of the world. Yes, absolutely. But they're all equally valued as we are in the sight of God. He loves all of us. So it's not that at all. But Peter said, in, that, in, that, in this life, there are the possible, there's moments that you're going to suffer, even when you're doing good. When you are doing good, you're trying to make the world a better place. When you are working to make a better place for everybody, believers and unbelievers, and standing against injustice, that you're going to be attacked. I thought about some examples as I bring all this to a close for a moment. I thought about this. That you find yourself hanging out with your neighbors who are unbelievers. Yes, they're not living a biblical lifestyle. And other Christians condemn you for doing the things that Jesus did, right? So we find ourselves in those moments. Yes, you feel yourself, you feel God telling you to give to the person on the side of the road with a cardboard sign. And so you feel that God is saying, don't do more than give, invest your life. Put a personal edge on your compassion. That's what he's saying. And everybody else in the car with you is calling you a sucker for the sign, right? Yes, there are those moments in life. Let me go another direction. Collectively in our culture, people are raising their voices for the value and the quality of human life in this country and worldwide. And that is absolutely a wonderful thing. And we should do that together. But when you include in that discussion many times the life of the unborn, it changes things. Mark, you shouldn't talk about it. No, we should talk about that because it's very true. We talk about having good marriages and strong relationships. And most everybody in the world wants that. We do. We want that kind of strong relationship with others in, in the bonds of marriage. But when you bring in the principle that a healthy marriage is a union between a man and a woman, it changes things. Those moments in your life as a believer, understand that there's going to be those moments when you're going to suffer. It's going to happen. What do you do? How do you respond? You find the biggest Bible that you can find and you beat them with it until they come to submission, right? No, no. I went to a service one time when I was younger. I did. It's sort of the church. I grew up in this church and the pastor was getting excited. He grabbed his Bible and he started walking down the middle aisle and he started hitting people over the head with it. And I'm thinking, really? Is that the way it works? Line up. We're going to do that with you at the end of the service. No, it doesn't work that way. How do I respond? Verse 15. Look at this as we end today. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Look what it says. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with what? 
gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. And I thought there are two things here I think are important. But in your hearts, honor Christ. The Lord is holy. What does that mean? That God is separate from the world. And so that says to me that God is ultimately in control. Amen. God is ultimately in control. And I trust that. That those that may oppose me at times in this life are not in control. God is ultimately in control. And because he is separate from the world, that means that Jesus is better than anything else in this life. He's better than anything else in this life is what it means. So I'm not always working for the acceptance of others. And I'm not always worshiping at the altar of everyone else's opinion of me. That God's in control of all things. But I also says that I'm always to be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for my hope. That I amaze them by how I suffer. You say, Mark, that's the most oddest thing I've ever heard. I know, but listen, just give me a moment before you close your Bibles and you say, I'm done with this. I amaze them with how I suffer. To the point that they're so curious and compelled about the joy that is in my life that they are compelled to have a conversation with me as to why I have that in the middle of my suffering. How can you be so joyful when you're treated so wrongly? Because it's how we reveal God's glory to those around us. This stuff doesn't sell books. I realize that. It's not the thing that you stand in line for. In Western evangelicalism, we want to show the world how God blesses us with health and wealth. And the world is not amazed because anybody can be happy when they're rich and they're well. But what about when you're rejoicing in the middle of persecution in your life? What about, your, what about when you find the joy of the Lord in the middle of loss in your life? What about when you find joy in the middle of sickness in your life? What about when you go to work tomorrow and your boss says, Hey, you know what? You're a great employee, but right now we got to make some cuts and you don't have a job anymore here. And you walk out of there saying, God, I'm concerned, yes, but I know that you're in control of all things. And they watch how you process and navigate through those moments of your life. It's a joy that pain can't take away. It's a peace that surpasses all of our understanding. So I asked myself a question in my journal this week. When was the last time That someone was amazed at how joyful you were in the middle of your suffering. When was that moment? It's a thought. Verse 17, last verse, I promise. There's more, but I can't go longer. Verse 17 says, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And so I called it the better way. I called it the better way this morning. And I think for some of you in the room, that you're in the middle of experiencing injustice. 
Things are happening in your life right now that maybe you thought would never happen. And you feel like you don't deserve any of it. And maybe you don't. Maybe you don't. You're suffering. You see, today's not a sermon about you just not saying anything. Don't misunderstand this. Because sometimes in these moments of our life, we have to say something. We need to say something. But I think what Peter is teaching us is that we should suffer well. And your suffering should show the hope that you have in Christ. So that it's a great hope that that even though it's Touched by your suffering, it's not eliminated by your suffering. That in the middle of suffering, that you have a love that is beyond human understanding. That in the middle of this moment of your life, that you take a pause. Because I think our first is to react to these things emotionally. And maybe you're different than me, but when I react emotionally to things, it's almost always the wrong reaction. But you take a moment, a pause in where you are, in the struggles of your life, in the suffering of the moment. And you ask God to show you something. You ask God to show you His redemptive plan in the middle of this moment of persecution and suffering. Because since our life is about that of serving and loving God, making Him known to the world, then I would have to say that in all the moments of our life, no matter how painful they are, That we can find that moment where God is making his redemptive plan known. You say, Mark, you're not where I am. And I know that. This discussion this morning was not to devalue where you are or minimize what you're dealing with. It's not. But it's to bring you to a truth. Because your situation is not what determines truth in your life. It is God's word that determines truth in our lives. And the truth is. That we're called as exiles in this world. To suffer well. And that's a tough thought to leave you with today but it's Peter's thought to you and I that we are surrounded by hope the hope of what Christ has done for us through the gospel the hope of his return in the future the second advent so we are sandwiched in between this great hope from Christ so we're not doing this on our own we're not just pulling some energy from inside of us We're not just trying to speak positive words. 
far more than that. It's the power of God that's resident in our lives that works through us in those tough moments of life so that we make him known. So for a moment, would you bow your heads just for a moment of reflection today? And I know that there are so many ways that we could have gone with the end of this teaching this morning and read more verses, but yet I believe that this is where the Lord wants us to sit for a moment. Because if there's anything that we can all, I think, come to a common understanding of is suffering in this life. That that this world has those moments for all of us. And some of you in the room, you're in a good place and everything is going great and then there are others that are in a really bad place right now. But the question is, how do we navigate those moments and how are you navigating that moment in your life? Are we suffering well in these moments of our lives? so that his joy and his love will be made known to the world around us. Before I pray, listen, and I have to say this to you this morning, this doesn't mean that you can't mourn. This doesn't mean that you can't cry. This doesn't mean that you can't be angry at times. That's not what we're saying at all. Those are all human responses. Understand that. And God is with us in the moments when we're rejoicing and he's the moments when we're angry at him. He's with us. He never leaves us. This is not to say that you can't be emotional. This is not saying that, that you, can't, you can't walk that path at times in your life. But what it's saying is that how do you ultimately process this? Because the ultimate aim is to serve and love God that he will be known in this world. So, Father... You are so aware, God, of where we are. Of every moment, there's nothing that's a surprise to you. Of of every situation in this life, you're so well aware of all of those things in our lives. And God, you're with us. You never leave us. You don't abandon us in those times. But the question is for us today, God, in those moments of suffering, in those tough places of our lives, in those moments when we want to retaliate, how are we living out that space? Because you're challenging us this morning, God. You're challenging us for some change within our lives. How do we navigate those moments? How do we work through those times? And God, for those moments when Yes, we are emotional. Those moments, God, when we're angry and and God, those moments when we say things to you out of frustration. Oh God, we're covered in your grace and your love. And you're a loving Father who embraces us in all moments of our lives. 
But God, help us to stay focused on this aim, to make you known in this world, even in the moments, even in the moments where we suffer. Because it's all about you, Father. It's all about loving and serving you today through all these moments of our lives. And Father, we give you thanks for speaking to us powerfully.